Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Ephesians 4. Today we're going to be in verses 17 through 32, through the end of the chapter. So verse 17 of chapter 4. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you do not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Verse 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth to each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands that which is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for this chance to open up your word. Um, we just pray that as we dive into the end of this chapter, that you would speak uh, through me, that you would speak through your word, and just continue to build out a picture for us here at VGC. Um, in the fall of 2023, what you have for us as to how we need to walk, how we need to operate as believers, how we need to identify ourselves for the world around us so they, they can see you. Uh, we pray that you'd be with JB as he's abroad right now. That you would just establish um, the time that he's spending over there, establish that work. Uh, the gospel would be put forth through um, just the people and the conversations and, and the activities that he has. And we look forward to hearing the report when he comes back. And so now I just pray you bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, my family and I were gone last week. We were in Colorado, in Denver. A friend of ours was getting married. And, um, yeah, with all the responsibilities given in, like, a, a wedding, we were given quite a few of them. Um, my daughter was the flower girl. Nash was the ring bearer. And I was officiating the wedding. So, if you look at the amount of opportunities we had to mess things up, we... Um, there were plenty of them, but we, we did okay. They got married, and there wasn't too much distraction. Nash had a, a little moment there, walking down the aisle with the, the ring box. He saw, he saw Sage throwing the flower petals, and um, so he starts, takes a couple steps, and sees that she's got an activity, and so he's got his box, and he's never done this before. Probably my fault for not explaining it to him. So then he opens up the box, which we did not have the rings in, but 
he thought he was supposed to be throwing something. And so he's looking in the box. He's like pulling up the base layer of the box. Meanwhile, Sage is about halfway down the aisle. And then he starts tipping the box over and shaking it out like he's missing something. Everyone's laughing. And if you can imagine a three-year-old, the only kids at the wedding were our kids and then a few friends of ours. And so he's just got all these adults looking at him laughing. And he kind of sunk down and walked down the aisle kind of distraught. And um, that was about as bad as it got. So I was proud that we held things together. But the other big thing that happened uh, the weekend we were gone last weekend was uh, Sage turned five, turned five on Saturday. So we got to celebrate that with her. And um, it's funny, this, this life event, turning five, has there's been some anticipation, um, particularly for Liv and I, because um, as you parents know, I don't know if your experience is the same, but I know the Perrys can attest to this. We've taken a couple trips with them. My kids are awful when it comes to eating their food and so we're trying everything in the book you know to make meals not last an hour and a half um, and uh, and so as sage approached this milestone birthday of five years old it, it became like a, a, a big kind of you know pinnacle event for us because we kept telling her hey you're about to be five you know five-year-olds eat their dinner right this is what they do um, it's a characteristic of a five-year-old right um, and so now that she is five you better believe we're using that to no end with bribery and trying to get her to eat her food. It's, it's a new life she's starting. You're five years old. You eat your food. That's what five-year-olds do. Um, and so I thought of that as we approached this second half of chapter four. Um, I wasn't here last week, but um, the first half of the chapter, I believe Kirk is preaching on the unity uh, that we have in Christ, the unity in the spirit. And the second half of this chapter now, Paul is going to talk um, to the Ephesians about what this new life entails now that you're in Christ. Now that you're in Christ, we're unified, but we're unified, obviously, by the Spirit. And so now what? Like, how do we act? How do we walk? What is this new life? What does it entail? Um, and so that's what we're going to be going through here today. So the first section, verses 17 through 24, we're just going to go through two realities about this new life. So this new life in Christ for the Ephesian church and for us today, there's two realities that, that Paul brings up. And so the first one is this, that Christianity is a walk. It's a walk. It's a lifestyle. This new life is a lifestyle to be lived. So let's go ahead and read verses 17 through 20 again. Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But also, you did not learn Christ in this way. Paul opens up this section on the heels of the unity of the Spirit that he's talking about, saying, this is a walk, this is a lifestyle. Now that you are in Christ, this is the way that you need to live. In uh, the beginning of chapter 4, he has a similar theme. He says, therefore, I, prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Paul is telling these Ephesian believers that how you walk is extremely important as a believer. You've been transformed. You've been given the Holy Spirit. Your heart is made new. But now what? Christianity is not just a set of ideas. 
It's not just a condition about the future. It's not just where we're going. But it's a here and now. It's a walk. It's a life to be lived. If you look at this, it's, it's kind of interesting because he says, I urge you to no longer walk as Gentiles walk. And if you look at the Ephesian church, one thing that's interesting is if you go back to, actually, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you at one time were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 11 says, remember, you Gentiles were separated from God. He's speaking to Gentiles. The Ephesian church, they're Gentiles. But now here he is in chapter 4 saying, not to know, he's saying no longer walk as Gentiles. Okay, so you are Gentiles, but don't walk as Gentiles. What does he mean by that? So we need to clarify this. And what he's saying is like, even though you're Gentiles in the flesh, so they're not Jews, they're not part of the Jewish ethnicity, it doesn't demean who they are as people. It doesn't change their ethnicity. He's already said how they're fellow heirs. They're on equal footing now with the Jewish saints, right? What he's saying though is, now that you're transformed now that we are one in Christ don't walk the way that you used to walk don't walk the way as you look at all these other Gentiles who are not transformed no longer walk in that way you're changing your identity so they're no longer waving that flag of being Gentiles right they're waving that flag of being Christ followers this is who you are now this is your new identity it's a change of identity a change of lifestyle a change of the way they walk and so how do the Gentiles walk? We see in those verses as well. It talks about the futility of their minds. I know what the word futility means, but it's always good for me to like look at a definition to like help me kind of build out some context. And futility, it's like it's useless. It's pointless. Futility is when the object of your faith or whatever your mind is focused on doesn't accomplish what you think it's going to accomplish. So that's the world we live in, right? It's people who are not transformed and set their minds on the things of this earth, right? There's, they're, they're, they're looking for hope. They're looking for promise. They're looking for a foundation, something to hold to that's, gonna, that's going to sustain them. And that's the same thing as the Gentiles, the spiritual Gentiles, is it's pointless. This way in which you walked, this, this mindset that you have, it's futile. And what this did is it, it alienated these people from the life of God, because they were ignorant, right? It says due to their ignorance, their hardness of heart. And this ignorance wasn't like a lack of education. These are smart people, and we all know these people, right? In our society, there's a lot of intelligent people in this world. And so this ignorance isn't that they're not smart, but it's because they're, they're wasting this brilliance on the, basically, ideas of this world. They're wasting that because their hardness of their heart is not allowing them to turn and respond to the gospel. And so they reject the knowledge of God, but they think that they're enlightened because of it, right? This is what these verses are saying. They're callous, and they've given themselves over to every sensuality, every form of sensuality, and they're greedy, practicing impurity. So this is who they used to be before Christ, right? This is the, the contrast here. 
And Paul's saying, no longer walk this way. You've, you've received Christ. Now that you are in Christ, now that you've responded to the gospel, we are one in the spirit. We're no longer to walk in this way. The Christian life is, is a walk. It's a lifestyle. Ephesians 2, again, you don't have to turn there, but verses 1 through 5 talks about how they were dead in their trespasses and sins in which they walked, right? You don't walk like this anymore. Once you're in Christ, you are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 10 says of chapter 2, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So walk in them. He's saying in verse 2, like you were created in Christ, when you came to Christ for good works. So walk in those good works. This is the new walk. So again, Christianity is not just a list of ideas, ideologies. No, it's a walk. It's something that we are to live out. And I think we've all probably heard like that phrase, um, you know, so-and-so is, is no longer walking with the Lord, right? We've all heard that before. Or on the positive side, like, hey, like, I'm really encouraged. So-and-so seems to be walking with the Lord. It's kind of that same idea. Someone not walking with the Lord is a really sad thought. I mean, it either means that they were no longer saved or they're just betraying their present faith and choosing to, as we'll see here in a, in a little bit, grieve the Holy Spirit, right? And so just dialing in that idea, Paul keeps coming back to the Christian life is a walk. It's a way of living. We haven't gotten there yet, but Ephesians chapter 5 Next week, well, I guess probably two weeks from now, um, talks about being imitators of God and walking in love. And so Paul is going to continue to hit home this theme that he's hit all throughout the book of the way that Christians are to walk. And then if we look at verse 20, Paul says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. So he's talking about the impurity of their heart, the callousness, the lust, the sensuality, every kind of impurity, the greediness. Paul's pleading with them. He's saying, this isn't how you learn Christ. This isn't the heart condition in which you came to Christ. And so he's exhorting the Gentiles, these new Gentile believers, sorry, to no longer walk as Gentiles, but to live in a way that's consistent with the way that they were transformed. Okay? And so that kind of leads us to the second part of this first section, the second reality of a new life. And that is that this new life requires a new self. So in order to not walk as they used to walk, that means they need to change, right, the way that they live their life. It's a, it, it, it sparks a change of lifestyle. And Paul begins this section, verses 21 through 24, talking with a little bit of an analogy. So we'll read that here real quick, and then we'll talk through this, this new self that this new life requires. So verse 21. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Other translations say you put off the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And so he begins, uh, or he, he kind of packages this idea that this new life requires a new self. It's a new you. You're a new person, a new being. And he uses some clothing talk to do so. So this analogy of putting off the old self and putting on the new self, it's, it's as if 
you're basically changing your, your clothes, right? It's, it's, I'm no longer associated with that old self, and now I'm putting on this new self. And so the, the question here, or the, the temptation would be to think, it's as if he's telling us to put on something to cover up who we once were, and, and, and that's not really all it at all. It's not a superficial thing. It's, it's actually really profound. He's, he's talking about basically putting off the old person that you were and putting on a brand new person. It's not covering anything up. You are a new being now that we are in Christ. This is actually like the last thing from hypocrisy. We're not, we're not here trying to cover anything up, but really just trying to show now who we are, that we are redeemed in Christ. And I think the order here is important. He's, he doesn't say, become a new person and you'll be saved, right? He doesn't say, do all of these things and you will earn your, your salvation. Or do all this and that will transform your heart. He's saying, hey, this new person, this new being, this new identity of yours is coming as a result of a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. So now that you've been transformed, now that you're no longer a spiritual Gentile, but you've been brought into the fold, this is a result of it. This is the manner in which you're going to walk. You're going to put on your new self. And so I, I kind of was curious, like, why is he using this clothing analogy? And there's a lot smarter people than me out there, and so I went and did some research and saw what they had to think. And I really liked how John Piper put it. And it, it really is a profound analogy. And Piper's basically saying that the idea of putting something on alludes to the fact that like, this needs to be visible. This needs to be visible to the outside world. This needs to be visible to the people that you know and knew before and after that transformation of your heart. This isn't just something that takes place inside of us but has no effect on the world that, that is around us. And so when you think putting on, when you think this clothing analogy, it's, it's actually a, a public identity. And so in a sense, you're, you're, you're fixing your identity, but you're, you're making it public. You're a new person. The people that you encounter are to be able to look at your life and the way you operate and not think, oh, that's just the same old Eric right? There's a public understanding that you are a new person in the way that you operate. Um, when I was coaching at LC State, we used to obviously recruit a lot of high school athletes, right? And uh, these high school athletes came from various programs, high school programs around the Northwest, typically. Um, and when they'd come into our program, a lot of times the players that we recruit and that we brought into our team, like they're pretty good players, right? Otherwise they wouldn't be playing at that level. And so there was a, a level of success that they had probably experienced in their high school career before they got to us. Um, there was also um, a, a good chance that whatever high school program they were a part of, whatever team they were a part of before, um, had instilled some habits and techniques and philosophies and ways of doing things, right? And so we'd get these good players, they'd come into our program, and um, you know, depending on the type of player and the type of person that we would bring in, you know, a lot of the stuff that they're getting introduced to is, was all new, right? It's, it's kind of leveled up. It's like we, we do things differently, most likely, than the high school team that they played for, or that we taught things differently than their high school coach taught. But even to another level, those of you, and, and there's quite a few in here that have 
played college athletics, the, the college athlete, the student athlete model is much more demanding than what you experience at the high school level, right? From the academics and the schedules and the, the time commitments, um, the travel commitments, it's, it's, a whole new, it's a whole new life, really. And so we used to get these players that would come in and they'd have these habits and they'd have these tendencies and maybe they weren't getting the amount of sleep that they needed to or their nutrition was terrible or even just the way that we structured practice or the way we went into the weight room, right? And, and, and the way we approached everything as a team, it was all different from, from where they were coming from. And uh, some of these players handled this transition better than others. And what we found was there was every now and then we'd get you know, a couple freshmen coming in and they'd always be alluding back to, well, my high school did it this way, or my high school coach taught me this way, or this is how I'm wired, or this is who I am. And they'd try to kind of force themselves into the unit, the team, the identity that we had already built. And so we, we like as a coaching staff, we're trying to find ways to like um, humbly, but sternly communicate to these players that when you come here, you're a part of what we have built. We're not, we're not going to lend ourselves to who you are. You're going to become us. And so literally in our locker room, you walk in and there's a wall right here, right in front of you when you walk in the door before you take a left and go into the locker room, a big blank wall. And so our head coach had put up there in massive words so they'd see it every single day. You become us. We don't become you. And what it did, what it, was, it was just a, it was a, an exclamation to these players every day. And when they walk into our program, when you're a part of the Lewis Clark State men's basketball program, we are not going to change to become you. When you committed, when you decided I wanted to be a part of this program, what you're saying is that I'm going to become a part of you. Our entire team is not going to become you. You are going to become us. And when everyone buys into that mentality, it's a really, really special thing. And when you don't, you stand out. So guys who aren't bought in, it became very evident pretty early on who was willing to embrace that new identity and who wasn't. And I kind of see some similarities here with the Christian life. You know, the, the, the gospel and the transforming work that it does, these Gentile believers are experiencing for the first time. And Paul's basically saying, hey, like, if you're on board, which I'm glad you are, and here's all the the cool aspects of being made alive in Christ and being unified in the spirit. And what he's saying now is like a part of that, what comes with that is now you are a part of the body of Christ. And with that comes a new life. You're putting off your old self. You're putting on your new self. And I think it's really cool that Paul doesn't say that you're going to create for yourself a new person or you're going to get yourself or become a new person. He's saying that God has already made you into this new person. And that goes back to Ephesians chapter 2 that we already read. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus which, uh, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. This is God's work. God's doing a transforming work in your life. He's the one that made you alive. He created you. He transformed you. And now he's made you to walk in this way. Okay, and so that's the, the first section there in verses 17 through 24, two realities of this new life in Christ. Number one is that it is a lifestyle. It's a walk. It's the way you live. It's not just a point in time that you, um, 
you know, say a prayer and then just know that that just kind of saves your, 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 your spot in line, per se, for eternity. No, it's from now until eternity, how then are you supposed to live? And then the second reality is that this new walk requires a new self. And so you're putting off your old self and you're putting on this new self. And so in light of that, verses 25 through 32 will end here. We have six exhortations from Paul. And it's basically like this. Given that, right, that we're putting off our old self, we're putting on our new self, what are we to put off and put on? And I don't think this is obviously an exhaustive list, but maybe Paul's just going through some examples that he is thought specifically applied to these believers here in Ephesus. But we're going to go through them as well. Six things that Paul is saying you are to put off and to put on. So number one in verse 25, we'll read it right here. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So the first one Paul is saying is put off falsehood. Now that you are new in Christ, now that you are a believer, you are to put off all falsehood, and you are to put on the truth. Speak truth to one another. You ask yourself, like, why? <laughs> he says, because, for, we are members of one another. And that kind of points back to, real quick, I'll turn there, you guys don't have to, but Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one in the body of Christ, and individually members of one another. Paul is saying, now that you're in this new life, you are members, you belong to the body of Christ, you also belong to one another. And so speak the truth to each other. Don't lie. Why would we lie to people that we are members of? We're members with each other in the body of Christ, but we belong to each other. So speak the truth. Lying comes from a lack of faith in God's providence, comes from greed. Lying comes from potentially a, an effort to be accepted by the unbelieving world. You think of Peter when he denied Christ. It's an effort to take matters into your own hands or think that I need to manipulate this situation. We know that God's word is truth. God is the source of all truth. And so anything aside from the truth would be us walking as the Gentiles walk, right? Walking like our former selves. Lying could be to hide sin. It could be a form of pride. And what Paul is saying is put off falsehood. Now that you are in Christ, put on the truth. Speak truth to one another. Christians are to be known for speaking truth. And we know that God's word is the source of that truth. And so, obviously, all the more reason to, to spend time in God's word. So second, we'll go to verse 26. Paul says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So second, Paul says to put off sinful anger, right? And put on self-control. In your anger, do not sin. So don't let your anger get to the point where you are sinning. Don't let your anger consume you. Why and how can we do this as believers? We can do this because our identity is in Christ and our future is in heaven. And so are there things that will make us angry? Yes. But do we need to let that anger cause us to sin? Not only should we not let it, but Paul is saying, get rid of it. 
Self-control, a fruit of the Spirit. Use the, the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit to help you get rid of that anger. Don't let it carry over the next day. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Because this right here, when you let it linger, when you let anger linger, and you don't utilize self-control and go to the Lord in prayer and, and really try to respond with a transformed heart, that, that's going to give the devil a chance to creep in. That's what verse 27 says. And do not give the devil an opportunity. I can think of many examples, I'm sure you guys can too, of just situations, maybe didn't start out as much, seemed pretty minor, but it was just an opportunity to let anger sink in. And, it, and, it, and if it wasn't handled or if it wasn't brought to the Lord, if we, if we don't use self-control, I, I can think of examples that in my life where it's blown out of proportion and Satan has and will take every opportunity in those moments to let it fester and create something that if we follow Paul's advice here that doesn't need to take place. So put on self-control. Put off sinful anger. One of the things I loved about coaching basketball was that it's a game of constant transitions. And so like if, if we had players that made a bad pass and the, other t- and the defense stole it and they were going in the other direction, you literally have no time to put your head down, to sink your shoulders, to throw your hands in the air, complain to the referee about a foul that you thought he should have called. If you spend any second like responding to a negative thing that's happened it's an opportunity for the other team then to exploit right because now you're not getting back on defense and now you're not preparing for the next play and so we used to always preach to our guys it was just probably yelled these two words from the bench more than any other words in my coaching career was next play next play you make a mistake next play move on to the next play we don't want to give the other team an opportunity to capitalize on us letting our guard down or, or shifting our focus from where it needs to be from the task at hand because we're too worried about some little thing that happened. Don't let your mistakes compound. It's the same principle here. In your anger, do not sin. Also, don't let your, your anger linger to the next day. You self-control. Don't let the sun go down, down on your anger. Move on and don't let the devil have a chance to creep in. Number three, verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing works with his own hands that is good, so that he will have something to share with one who is in need. And so number three, Paul's saying is put off thievery and put on good, honest work. Put on labor. Thievery, deception, shortcuts, kind of goes back to the falsehood principle in, chapter, in, in the first I guess it was verse 25 the first point that Paul made these don't belong in the life of a believer thievery stems from laziness greed or again a lack of faith in God like why would you steal if you ultimately truly believe that God is the one who provides for our needs if we know that God's given us everything we need then we don't need to steal we don't need to lie we don't need to deceive this lifestyle is one that doesn't belong in the life of a believer. It's a sin that ultimately comes from a lack of faith in God. Manipulating the situation because you think that for some reason God needs you to act or tilt the scale in a certain way to accomplish what He needs to accomplish. 
And so put off thievery, but also put on good, honest work and labor. I love that. This shows that labor is a good thing. We're supposed to work. Work hard. Honest work. We had two rules. I keep going back to coaching, but that's really all I have to work off of here. We had two rules in the weight room with our team. Because everyone's in a different place when they come in, right? Our 5'9 point guard is going to be able to lift differently than our 6'10 skinny center, right? And so the rules that we put in place were just overarching themes that we kind of left in their hands and held them accountable to. And the two rules that we had were don't cheat the reps. If you got to cheat something, cheat the weight. But you're going to not, you won't ever get out of here with one less rep than we're requiring you. You're going you're to get every rep in. So don't cheat the reps. Don't steal. No thievery, right? But then the second one that I think pertains to this is that we just tell them to give an honest effort. Give an honest effort. And when it comes to labor, I think that's what Paul is referring to here, the life of a believer. Give an honest effort, honest work. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The second part of that verse 28 talks about generosity. It says, performing work with his own hands what is good so that you will have something to share with one who is in need. So not only are we supposed to work hard, but in the life of a believer, whatever fruit comes from that labor, we need to have a willingness to share. And one of the things that I've been more encouraged with, I think, in the church just over the years is to see men and women who are using their talents that God has given them and their abilities to work hard. But then from that, displaying such generosity to give to back to the church, to serve the other members of the body, to serve the people in our community. Um, I can think of countless examples. And I think like that's a pretty awesome banner to wave as the body of Christ, is that we work hard. We have an honest approach to our labor and the fruit of that labor like, we work hard so that we can just give. And we can be the hands and feet of Jesus to those who are in need. And so when we trust God with the fruit of our labor, we, knew, we know that he'll continue to provide what we need. And so we have the freedom then to give and to serve. And I, just, I think that's really, really cool. And so Christians are to be known for generosity as a result of their honest labor. Number four, verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as, as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. And so as believers, we are called, Paul is saying, we are to put off corrupt talk and put on beneficial talk. We're to build others up. So stop evil speech and start building up as fits the occasion. I think that's really key. Because that building up talk can look a couple different ways. It could mean encouragement, which I think is pretty obvious. My favorite definition of encourage is to build courage in other people. And so instead of corrupting talk, if we see someone who is struggling, to come alongside and encourage, to build courage in them, to give grace in that way with that loving, encouraging talk. 
I think building up that type of talk could also mean accountability and exhortation. And so an exhortation, basically what Paul's doing right now, he's addressing or communicating emphatically. He's urging people to do something. So it's like kind of a, of a challenge mixed with an encouragement. That's what an exhortation is. And I think that that sort of accountability is also an example of this building up type of talk. As Paul says, whatever fits the occasion. So there may be someone in the church that is maybe living according to their flesh, right? Is not enacting what Paul is saying here to put on the new self. And so when you see that as a fellow heir, as a body member that belongs to that person, exhortation, accountability is a form of grace. Instead of what? Like a corrupt talk, right? Instead of gossip, instead of slander, instead of maybe just whispers around what that person's going through, it's no, go to them and build them up. And that's, as Paul says, grace to those who hear. And so Christians are to build others up in whatever way is fitting for that occasion. And number five, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, was a little, um, it took a little more unpacking for me as I was going through this. We'll read verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So grieving the Holy Spirit. As we unpack this a little bit, I, I think this is essentially what Paul's getting at here is you are to put off, and this is kind of, a, again, a general theme that he's going through, but whatever is unworthy of our calling and put on the identity that you have been redeemed, that you've been sealed for the day of redemption. When we sin as a believer in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, the Holy Spirit is inside of us. And so when we're sinning, when we're partaking in that lifestyle, I think it's safe to assume here that Paul's saying that's what causes the Holy Spirit to grieve. I think it's important. This is good news. We know that the Holy Spirit will never leave the believer. When he transforms your heart and you're given the Holy Spirit, he's not going to leave you. But the bad news is, is the Holy Spirit does grieve when we partake in hurtful talk, unwholesome talk, when we dabble, per se, in the old self, right, that we're supposed to have put off. So that's the bad news. And Paul's saying here, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Put off anything that's unworthy of your calling. And put on the identity that you've been redeemed. So Christians are to live in light of their redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And then the last one, number six, in verses... 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ has also forgiven you. So this one's pretty straightforward. To end it, Paul says, to end chapter 4, put off bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, and put on kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. And why are we supposed to do that as believers? He says there at the end, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. We're supposed to be a reflection of what God has done. For us, that's what we're supposed to reflect to the outside world. 
And so, exhortation number six, Christians are to reflect God through their kindness, their tenderheartedness, and their forgiveness, the way that we forgive those around us. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for passages like this where we're challenged and reminded of who we are in Christ and the uh, responsibility that we have and the the freedom and the, the opportunity that we have to put off our former selves and live in light of the gospel and put on our new selves so that the world around us can see what the work of the Holy Spirit has done in our lives. And so I pray that we would be known for that as a church and that uh, you would continue to um, just exhort us and and, and point that out as we live in community here in in Boise and um, the circles that you have us in. So thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.